0: This is this Zach Ansbury Jim. Welcome. Today's podcast clip comes from an interview with Professor Scott Coslow from Macquarie University. Yeah. Makes sense. And so did that then transfer over through um, not necessarily to university, but did it transfer through your education? Like did you find in uh, no. high school you were picking no. business related subjects no. or no. creative or no. uh, are You uh, an artistic type person, or
1: um, okay? In in universe in high school, I went the typical academic kind of track. Um, so I grew up in a blue collar neighborhood in Detroit. So most of the folks that I went to high school with have gone into trades and and things like that, or they work in various factories and 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 the like blue collar kinds of jobs. So um, I wanted to get out of that world. Um, I could succeed with the academic kind of route so I did a lot of that um made my way to the University of Michigan um but yeah there was no sign early on of advertising being uh, a big issue I think probably early on I was more interested in fact I was interested in economics okay okay so that that had some interest of in mine from high school and I was econ major in undergrad, But then it was just a little bit too, I don't know what's the best word to describe it, too esoteric. It was this high-level kind of theory, and I wanted to know more of the detail. Which, that, that kind of reaction to, to economics is not a particularly unusual one. But the thing that sort of caught my eye in undergrad was voting behavior. Now, I was at the University of Michigan, and they have their... I'm trying to remember the name of the the Institute for Social Research. And they do the National Election Study out of there. And they've been known doing that every two years since, I don't know, the 1950s. It's a long data set, big data set. And it's a, a, a an important study for people to understand voting behavior in the U.S. And quite a bit of the voting behavior research um, originates from Researchers political science researchers at, at the University of Michigan, um, drawing from that data set. So I worked with some of these folks and, and studied under them, and I really liked the idea of wow, predicting presidential elections this is this is a big deal yeah. okay And uh, in fact, at one point in time I came up with a model of negative voting for congressional electra- elections that essentially, if you don't like what's going on, you vote against the party uh, in control. Okay. Mm. Um, years later I noticed somebody had fit that data as well. I think they probably did it better than I did, but I at least sort of had the idea, uh, early on. So I sort of was cognizant and thoughtful about voting behavior. So I was trying to think about, well, what do I want to do when I get out of undergrad? You know, what, like there's careers in voting behavior? No. <laughs> so I'm talking with this one academic. He wanted, to, he wanted to talk me into doing a Ph.D. in political science and voting behavior. And I ask him, so what kind of jobs are there? Mm. And he sort of says, well, you know what? There aren't a lot of jobs in political science. But you know what? You could work for a market research firm. Really? Okay, because I had never thought about marketing. I like marketing. I like advertising. Let's let's think about this. So in the end, I did an MBA, and I really loved marketing. Still didn't think too much about advertising. I loved advertising as well, but I still thought marketing, marketing, not advertising. And uh, then I worked for a year after I got the MBA. I worked for a year in Silicon Valley. Missed academic life, um, and went back and got a PhD. And I still wasn't thinking. Advertising, at the time I was thinking innovations, high tech. What was called at the time high tech marketing. I think that word's gone away. That phrase is gone away, but uh, that's what it was. And uh, so I started out trying to do some kind of high tech marketing in the PhD program. That pretty much lasted several months until I found a book by Everett Rogers called The Diffusion of Innovations. How did that and I, and I looked at that book. <laughs> And uh, he, again, was also from the University of Southern California. Um, But, you know, it's one of the classic works, Mm. um, seminal work in in innovations. And I looked at this book, and I sort of came to a bizarre conclusion. You know what? Everything's been done already. (laughs) Okay? I I can't add to this literature, so why should I? I should go off and do something else. Well, what sort of caught my eye at the time was scanner panel data. So I did my thesis on scanner panel data. Lots of people were doing stuff on scanner panel data at the time. Um, All fine and good. My stuff, however, was very different. Um, I took a measurement approach. Okay. It was more focused on... Let let me me give an example. Um, Let's say you're looking at a particular consumer... in in a store going in shopping in a store every week they walk into the store they buy different brands of laundry detergent and let's say for 14 weeks in a row they buy one box of laundry detergent the identical brand every single time never vary in the size never vary in the brand okay and they're always buying one box and one box only why are people doing what they're doing
0: Habitual behavior, yeah, that's mm-hmm.
1: one inference you can make. Anything else?
0: There could only be one brand in the supermarket itself. Okay, well, actually, there were multiple brands. Okay, there's multiple brands.
1: But, uh, I'm not quite sure. There's a whole bunch of reasons. It might be, be they like the brand. Yeah. It might be that it has some special feature that that works well with whatever issues they come up with in terms of their problem. You might sort of. They might not even be aware that they're buying the same brand all the time yeah yeah okay but you know half of all consumers in various categories end up buying the same brand all the time why do they do that stuff if we know all right now if i turned around and said if the person walks in the following week and for 14 weeks they've always bought the same brand what brand are they going to buy uh your money would be on that brand wouldn't it it would be on the same brand so Mm -hmm. what you end up with that Is that you can predict the behavior, but you can't understand it? Yes. Okay? All right. Here's another consumer. They walk into a store, and they see that there's a sense-off promotion for a particular brand. They buy that one. Following week, you see them in the data again, and there's another discount on a different brand. They buy that brand. Um, The following week, they come back in again. There's an end-cap display on one particular brand. There's no price discount, but of course, price discounts are very common on end-cap displays, mm. and it's the one that's on the end-cap display, but not discounted that they buy. The following week, they have a coupon, and they buy the brand with the coupon. And the, the following week, again, there's another discount on yet another brand, and they buy that one. And this pattern continues. You, you know what the pattern is, right? Mm. What's the pattern they're following?
0: Uh, they're just finding whatever one they can find with a discount. Whatever they can
1: get it with a discount, mm. okay? Now, Let's say another week, you, you, this goes on for 14 weeks, and they're always changing brands to whatever's on discount. They walk in the following week.
0: What are they going to buy? Uh, if you follow their purchase behavior, you would assume that they're going to buy one that's on, on price discount. Yes, but which one is that? Uh, you'd have to use a, a zero-order sort of processing function, <laughs> and there'd be a probability based on the, uh, the history of which brands they'd bought. Well, the only way you're going to predict it is
1: if you had a holdout sample on that consumer and you actually knew which products were on discount, and then it would be those counts, ones mm. that are on discount, okay? Yeah. So that's it, okay? So we know the mechanism for why they're buying, mm. but can we really predict it in the future in which we have absolutely nothing other than, than – and the, the modeling prediction that you're coming up with Which will probably favor the brand That is the most promoted okay, Or the most likely to be promoted at that time that, That's pretty much it We have a hard time predicting in the future What they're going to buy But yeah. we sure as heck know the mechanism Yeah Okay. Yeah. So, so what happens in scanner panel data Is that It's a very interesting kind of data Because it's a very sparse kind of data All you see is what they buy
0: and it's one at a time, slowly revealed over time. Yeah, and because this is scanner data, it's for one supermarket? Oh, let's so, say you, all supermarkets. Okay. So I was going to say, because if you were looking at just one supermarket, then you're going to be missing a whole bunch of purchases that are, yeah. you know, people buy from a different supermarket or repertoire of different stores. But Yeah. Yep, keep going. Sorry.
1: Well, let's say they never shop at Walmart, which yep. doesn't
0: participate in some of these yeah. um,
1: uh, research panels in the U.S., but say they never go there anyways, and In some of the 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 various markets in which they do the scanner panel data, household surveys, and so forth, we can have a complete set. So Mm -hmm. long as it's not Walmart and a couple other stores, we know everything that they buy. All fine and good. So what you're stuck with in scanner panel data is a weird feature of the data. If it has a lot of regularity in the data, you might be able to infer the mechanism. But if it's incredibly varied, you can't predict. On the other hand, if it's always regular, you can predict but you can't understand why. Now, to be honest, you go back to some of the conjoint kinds of stuff, and say you take a tradition of choice conjoint, and you give a consumer um, five different products that they can buy. They go and they choose one. Then you give them another set of five products. Which one would you choose among these five? They choose one. Now, typically, we might have to ask somebody 32 to 64 times Give them a choice of these five, which would you choose? And this is a, a lot of data that's required to actually infer the kind of decision make- mechanism that they have. Mm. Now, do we ever see that kind of detail in, in scanner panel data? The answer is we don't.
0: No, not typically, because they're usually about a, an annual period of time. And- yeah. People aren't buying from the category that often. Correct. So what we end up
1: with is there's these unusual consumers that always buy the same brand Mm. and some other folks who sometimes move around and sometimes don't. But how do we sort of infer the mechanism, the choice mechanism for that household? We're having a hard time. Mm. And then the only way to get around that is to aggregate across households, and all of a sudden you run into aggregation biases there. All right? So this is a weird feature of scanner panel data. Now, that's what my thesis was about, and it was about identifying sort of what part uh, uh, an analysis system that identifies what aspects of the data you have sufficient variation to be able to say, you can answer these questions this way. Okay. And, but there's a big chunk of what goes on in scanner panel data that is just too regular that you can never infer. Now, this is a very much a measurement tradition. I came up with a, a technique, um, conditional non-parametric sampling segmentation and transformation of sequential discrete choice data. That
0: was the name <laughs> of my technique. It was the acronym for that one. <laughs>
1: oh,
0: weird. I don't know.
1: But, you know, the, the journals didn't like it.
0: Okay. So, The, the reviewers from the journals, what, yeah, what sort looked, of feedback were they giving you?
1: Yeah, yeah. Sent it into, uh, wrote it up, sent it into um, journal marketing research. It went through um, six revisions,
0: Wow! Six that's,
1: reviewers. That's
0: quite a lot of reviews. two editors. Yeah,
1: and finally it was rejected.
0: Yeah. Okay. I mean, normally after about three, you sort then, of, no. they either give up or they accept it. Uh, so to go through six and to get a rejection is quite a yeah. Yeah. Wow. Six. Wow. How, over two editors. So that was multiple years of reviews. Then multiple years worth yeah. of review. this
1: was going on for uh, for years yeah. on end.
0: Yeah. Wow.
1: Okay. So. um... I certainly was devastated at the end of that. Of process. Of course, that's okay. huge.
0: You would be expecting it at that point.
1: <sighs> but you know the the thing was, there was a paper that came out shortly after that from Marketing Science. The editor was had a, a wonderful editorial, and he talked about the worshiping of data, and mm-hmm. that somehow or another, we have confused ourselves into thinking that scanner ba- scanner panel data is the end all, be all of data, and it must be the uh, absolute objective truth. But Does it really have as much power in that data as we think it does? Now, of course, my argument was often scanner panel data doesn't have the power in the data to be able to to make fine – Arguments about what's going on about consumer behavior from it, we can infer some things from it, and so those things are particularly valuable. You've already mentioned the double jeopardy uh, phenomenon, which is a critically important one, and people sort of ignore the, the significance of these kinds of effects. But those are the things that we can see in scanner panel data and can see it quite well. Mm. But don't confuse yourself with the fact that that's everything there is to know about consumer behavior. There are things well beyond it. And that, that was the, the subject of the editorial and, and marketing science. Now, mind you, it's these folks were all figuring out these kinds of issues in parallel with me and many others, to where scanner panel data has some real weaknesses. It has a lot of strengths that you can't find any other way. Certainly use it for what it's strong for, but don't necessarily rely on it for for insights that it's incapable of producing. Go to other methods um, that, that can give those kinds of insights. Now, of course, I think we went through sort of a decade or two of those kind of thinking. And by the end of, say, around 2000, we did come to this conclusion that the issues that I was raising really were important issues, but, you know, my research had moved on by then. The field had moved forward, and then, of course, we discovered clickstream data, <laughs> which again presents the exact same kinds of problems as scanner panel data. Which is how informative is this data? Mm. Okay. Now, a different kind of feature is there's usually not as much of a regularity in the data in clickstream data. It, it you know you don't see twenty seven purchases identical mm. uh, in clickstream data. But you also don't see the non-clickstream purchases that are out there, which are frequently the majority of purchases that folks have. Mm. So where does it fit in? How does it work? But, again, is it telling us what we really want to know? It tells us important stuff. Those are important lessons we need to incorporate. But there is still a world out there that is. this is only one piece of. So these kinds of issues are around. They're valuable. They're worthwhile. Um, I was sort of had the wrong theory at the wrong time, and it didn't go anywhere. So it never saw the light of day? It saw the, one portion of it. The logic that I just gave you yeah. showed up in a paper with Jerry Tellis in Journal of Advertising Research in 2011. Okay. All right? But it's just the logic of it, the the intuition that scanner panel data is not the end-all, be-all. Um, it is not sort of the objective judge everybody makes it out to be. Mm. Um, in fact, that paper, it was very interesting. It started off at the beginning that if uh, you were to characterize um, advertising and scanner panel data as characters from a film noir movie, advertising would be the beautiful femme fatale, okay, who's loyal to no one, and advertising is seen as the hard-boiled detective, <laughs> Okay, which of course the hard boiled detective has biases, and those biases need to be understood and worked within, and that, that's pretty much how the paper starts. And the analogy of film noir goes through the entire paper. It's you know it it was one of the funnest papers to write, and Jerry still remembers that one as like, "Wow, we got away with this one! I can't believe we got away with that."
0: <laughs> what's the uh, What's the title of the paper? Do you remember? Um... So Journal of Advertising Journal Research. Journal of Advertising Research. 2011.
1: Yeah, I think it was 2011. And who was your co-author on that one? Jerry Tellis. Jerry Tellis. And Jerry's one of the, the legends of uh, advertising effectiveness research. And he, he started out doing scanner panel data kinds of stuff. I think he was the first one to actually show statistically significant effects of advertising in scanner panel data, which was just nice. considered, wow, he actually came up with it. And he came up with the goods and showed that advertising had some effectiveness effect. Ooh. Okay? Isn't this wonderful? And then as soon as he publishes that, he, there's this editorial that shows up in the Wall Street Journal that says, how dare this guy tell us, go and say that the effects of advertising are so small? And it's like, you guys don't get it. We actually showed the effect. You should be glad. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> it's the, the weird things that happen. Uh,
0: and yeah, but it was a fun paper to write. Um, and it is really- hey guys, it's Zach Ainsbury here with just a couple of quick reminders. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, then make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. There are plenty more interviews to come with some of the world's leading marketing academics and the practitioners. You do not want to miss these. In the meantime, if you're looking for another way to connect, then follow me on Twitter at Zach Ainsbury. That is Z-A-C-A-N-E-S-B-U-R-Y for my take on the marketing issues of the day.